0: Hello my peeps! If you have somehow stumbled on this podcast by accident, you are listening to It's All Relative, and this is an NPC episode. For you non-gamers out there, an NPC is a non-playing or computer-controlled character in a game. Gamers often like to abuse NPCs because it doesn't affect the gameplay, and it is, for some reason, fun for them to be shitheads. NPC episodes focus on a victim or victims of crime who were treated like NPCs within their own life. Before we get too far down the rabbit hole, let me remind you that this is a podcast about crime. And there may be things that aren't suitable for all audiences. In other words, I fucking swear like a sailor and beyond mature themes are spoken about. Also, don't get your undies in a twist and try to sue anyone but me because everything here is all me and i am poorer than a dead church mouse so just don't sue me now to get you in the appropriate mood here are the kinks This was a difficult episode to put together because of the layers upon layers upon layers of concepts that could, and many of them should, be discussed. Just the selection of appropriate songs kind of made my brain collapse. And on that note, some people say the opener, Lola, is anti trans. I don't see it that way, and we don't have space here to dissect the lyrics, so just know that I chose that song with the best of intentions. Malcolm Michaels Jr. was raised in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Most sources say born on August twenty fourth, nineteen forty-five, but one documentary gives nineteen forty-four as the year of birth. He was the fifth of seven children in the family of Malcolm Michaels Sr. and Alberta Claiborne. The family were members of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Every bio about Malcolm mentions at least that he was raised in a staunchly Christian home. But whether this is really important or not is not completely made clear. A topic we will discuss a bit later. By age five, Malcolm was getting picked on by the neighborhood kids for wearing dresses. It is unclear exactly when or even why he decided to stop wearing said dresses. Some sources intimate that it was about age five due to the bullying. A few suggest it was his parents who pressured him to quit. Others suggest it was because he was sexually assaulted by another neighborhood child of 13 years. And may I add here, how the fuck is a 13 year old circa 1950 thinking about, let alone knowing how to sexually assault anyone, let alone a five year old baby? No, I'm not being naive, but Jesus Christ. Biography.com says, quote, Malcolm experienced a difficult childhood due to his Christian upbringing. He engaged in cross-dressing behavior at an early age, but was quickly reprimanded, end quote. No mention made here at all of the bullying or the assault. And then there's just nothing. Complete silence on his life from age five to after his graduation from high school when he appears in New York City. Malcolm arrives in New York City with $15 to his name. He begins making a living by waiting tables. Now, some sources say he was fired when they found out he was a crossdresser, and some sources say that he decided to quit. In any event, Malcolm stops Waiting Tables fairly shortly after he begins. He realizes he wants to be a drag queen. If you haven't guessed by now, soon after Waiting Tables, Malcolm stops going by the name Malcolm and officially takes on the name and persona of Marsha P., that's Pay It No Mind, Johnson. Many of you are familiar with that name, with that amount of recognition varying from, hmm, sounds kind of familiar, to, I've seen the Netflix documentary. That name, Marsha P. Johnson, is most often attributed to an LGBTQ individual who was an instigator in the infamous Stonewall Riots some reports even have marsha p being the one to officially set those riots in motion a little bit of foundational information here cultures have mythos i don't want to melt your ears with a deconstruction of the connotation of culture with chapters on supporting concepts but look let me assert that culture is not just the big all-encompassing idea of american african or mexican for example Culture is all the many, many things that make a group of any size unique. Families have their own culture. Schools have their own culture. Cultures overlap and cultures exist within cultures. As with practically everything, it's complicated. Now, anchor stories are those stories that tie all the people in that particular culture together. Anchor stories not only give them commonality, but these stories are part of the foundation of that culture. The culture cannot exist without these stories, and by this I mean that the stories can vary a bit when recounted, a few cracks in their validity can even form, although it's better if it doesn't happen, and other stories can also be told alongside these stories. But anchor stories must remain mostly stolid for the culture itself to exist. I in no way mean to suggest that these stories are not true. Of course, the rabbit hole of defining what is true and what is truth is one I think would lead to a broken looking glass, but barring that discussion, I will say that these anchor stories can get conflated, exaggerated, disjointed. They can even start from lies, but that doesn't mean this always happens. Now, I am equivocating here because not only is there no fast rule, but I am also about to address one of the anchor stories in the LGBTQ community. And that story is of the Stonewall Riots themselves. For those of you who don't know, the Stonewall Inn was a gay bar in Greenwich Village in New York, which was opened in 1967 by one of the various arms of the five families. Yes, again, the Mafia. The entire premise of the Stonewall's existence was illegal, starting with catering to gay men. Any sign of being gay at that time was illegal. The Stonewall functioned by giving token nods to legality and mainly by payoffs. The cops would raid the place looking for men holding hands, guys wearing women's underwear, looking to arrest some people and make it look like they were doing their jobs. The owners of the Stonewall would, of course, be tipped off in advance so they could look mostly on the up-and-up by the time the raid occurred. In late June of 1969, a raid that was purportedly political occurred in which many, many patrons of the Stonewall were manhandled and arrested and generally treated like shit. Oh, in this case, the Mafia did not get tipped off to this raid. This treatment started a riot, which spilled over into several days. Some sources say five, some say six. These riots marked a major point in the fight for LGBTQ rights in the US and has ended up being commemorated each year, now across the entire USA, as the pride parade.
1: 1969 when the Stonewall riots started, that's when I started my little rioting.
2: When Jerry Hoos, who was a founder of the Gay Liberation Front, arrived at the Stonewall Inn that night, uh, he was met by his friend John Goodman. And John Goodman told him that the, soon after Jackie Harmona started fighting the police that both Marcia Johnson and Zazu Nova joined in.
1: I've been in Gay Liberation ever since. First died in 1969. I was in
2: Stonewall riots. After the riots, Morty Manford and Marty Robinson, both very important figures in the Gay Activists Alliance, both told Robin Souza that Marsha Johnson was involved in starting the riots. The story that Robin Souza then told me was that Marcia Johnson said, I got my civil rights and then threw a shot glass into a mirror, and that started the riots. Uh, In GAA, this became known as the shot glass that was heard around the world.
0: Okay, so before I go any further, I just want to say, for some reason, I cannot say documentary. So, pardon me if I keep pronouncing that incorrectly. Don't know what's going on there. But that clip came from a documentary that you can see on YouTube called Pay It No Mind, The Life and Times of Marsha P. Johnson. And speaking, there was a man called David Carter who is the author of a book called Stonewall. If you look up the name Marsha P. Johnson anywhere, the bulk of the hits you will get actually give you information on the Stonewall riots and regurgitate the same minimal information about Marsha herself. I am not trying to belittle what happened at the Stonewall Inn. However, I find the fact that there is comparatively so little information out there about Marsha Johnson a great misfortune and kind of a slap in the face to her memory. Marsha herself said the riots were already rolling when she made it to the Stonewall Inn. She couldn't have thrown that shot glass. Marsha was an amazing person and so much more than just those few days in 1969. She lived about 25 years after the Stonewall riots and never stopped being amazing that whole time. People put way too much into the dissemination and permanence of one anchor story, in this case, Stonewall. It's a huge disservice to society that no one is spending that much energy in keeping the many, many stories of Marsha P. Johnson alive. Even the Netflix documentary is more about being trans in the village than it is about MPJ herself.
3: The people get lost in the telling of the story. They want the bigger picture what's going to be there. That there was a riot and this is what happened. That there were drag queens. They don't really get into the individual people who were more than the Stonewall riot. I mean, these were people that were bigger than life that walked the streets here.
0: And that voice was Danny Garvin, also from that Pay It No Mind documentary. Okay, after all that, my soapbox has been put away for now. Moving along. Several podcast minutes ago, I said that Malcolm took on the name and the persona of Marsha P. Johnson. Some people may think I mean that it was all an act, like Bob Denver taking on the persona of Gilligan. That is not what I mean at all. Perhaps it would be more accurate to say that she shed the persona of Malcolm, or at least she put Malcolm in the back of the closet. I'll come back to that later. From an article in Out called Power to the People, Exploring Marsha P. Johnson's Queer Liberation by Hugh Ryan, I quote, Johnson may not have hurled the first shot glass at Stonewall, but she was a major force in creating the visible queer community that rose up that evening. Her fearless presence announced itself in her goodwill dresses and the headpieces she crafted from Flower District cast offs. If silence equals death, then Johnson, in a very literal way, gave us life. End quote. Marcia had no place to stay when she got to New York. She lived on the streets. She made money through hustling, which was made up mostly of sex work. This was actually a major source of heat in the winter and a softest place to sleep. Warm and soft may have been the ultimate goal, but it didn't make it safe. Marcia was actually shot during an encounter with a client, and that bullet was lodged in her spine until the day she died. It wasn't until about 1980 that she found a long-term place to call home. Roy was a young
3: hooker, 18 years old when I met him. To make a long story short, he ended up staying here. I sort of took him in. He essentially became my adopted son. And one night he said to me, it was very cold out, about 10 degrees. He said, could Marsha come and sleep here? Because, you know, she didn't mind sleeping on the floor. Marsha likes to sleep on the floor, which I thought, now, Willie, you never lie. Why did you tell me a fib like that? And so I allowed Marsha to come in that night and she was here for the next 12 years.
0: And that was again from that Pay It No Mind documentary. And that was Randy Wicker. He was also a major activist. Still is, as far as I know. And this is, again, from that Power to the People article in Out. I quote, Run a Google image search of Johnson, and you'll get page after page of results showing her with a smile as wide as 14th Street. Smiling in a club, smiling on the corner, smiling in a photo by Andy Warhol, smiling on stage with the hot peaches, smiling while her best friend Sylvia Rivera throws her fist up in the air. Smiling even when the rest of her face looks exhausted and done. Smiling on a promotional sales tag from the Hot Topic for hipsters, urban fucking outfitters. Smiling, smiling, always smiling, end quote.
1: Uh, Marches like a bodistaffa. Her presence on Sheridan Square or on Christopher Street or wherever she stopped and asked for spirit change or chatted with people. It was a religious, holy experience. And all of us who
3: did drag or partial drag always admired her and thought of her as a patron saint. Could you give me a dollar? Do you have a dollar for a dying drag queen or a starving queen? It was
1: sort of a Robin Hood. She would ask for money from people who were in the street going by and say for instance they would give her some money. Uh, two minutes later she'd turn around and give it to somebody else who needed it. She'd say, here honey, get yourself something to eat.
3: Marsha, what I saw in the flower just getting crowned holy by people from India. She knows something that I don't know. I mean, i go to the flower district, and, and they have these big tables where they sort like lilies and things. Marsha would be sleeping under them. And I saw this more than once, and I would say to the guy there, why is she here? And, and the guy would just say, oh, she's holy.
0: And again, those last clips were all from that Pay it No Mind documentary. If these Hindis saw Marsha with the pre-colonial lens of Hijira, which very simply is a transgender demigod, things changed a lot when the Brits took over the colonies, I don't want to get into it, look it up if you need to. Then this actually makes complete sense that she became a god in their eyes. Honestly, Marsha was the embodiment of the benevolent Hegira. She also had her grumbly god days. Marsha was having a very rough time and sat there and just said, you know, I don't know if I should take a shower or go to Bellevue. And I think she took a shower.
1: My first young... My five mental breakdown we started in 1970, and that was did started falling downhill, and it's been going up and down ever since.
0: Both of those clips were from the Pay at No Mind documentary, and that last one was Marcia herself. Marcia would get really, really low and a bit mean. She'd say she was Malcolm on those times, as if he just wouldn't stay in that closet where she put him away and tried her best to stay away from other people to avoid bringing them down as well.
3: She would go up Christopher Street where she would be picked up about midway. I mean, somebody would see Marsha, you know, naked queen walking up the street and they would call and they would take her away for about two or three months. And they would put an implant in her spine, of Thorzine, I think it was, and that would calm her down. Then she would come back. She'd be like a zombie for about a month and then
0: she'd be the old Marsha. And yes, both of those clips were from the Pay It No Mind documentary. And now we are back to that Power to the People article. Quote, Perhaps my favorite image of Marsha P. Johnson comes from a 1970 Gay Liberation Front protest at Bellevue Hospital. In an oversized fur coat, Johnson leans against the corner of a building, a desultory cigarette hanging from one hand. In the other, she holds a poster with simple block letters reading, Power to the People. Which people? All people, particularly her people. Queer people, street people, activists, artists, trans women, drag queens, sex workers, the poor, the homeless, and those who struggle with mental illness. At a time when being any one of those things might land you in jail or in the morgue, Johnson was all of those things tied up in a messy package, with a gorgeous trash couture bow on top. I'm trying to see how we got here, to a place where we can memorialize Johnson as the Saint of Christopher Street yet ignore the consistent violence that her trans daughters and granddaughters still face. How we can fetishize Johnson's presence at Stonewall, yet ignore the demands she made of the queer community and the world at large. Johnson is emblematic of what black queer feminist thinker Alexis Pauline Gumbs describes as never straight, those queer pioneers who were unable or unwilling to hide their differences and thus force queerness to be publicly acknowledged wherever they went, end quote. And that last bit, I think, is what made her most important. She was a black, trans woman, drag queen who never hid herself, stopped caring for others, or stopped demanding the rights for all people, regardless of how others treated her in a pre-RuPaul world. This treatment was so bad that regular gays openly shunned Marcia and her more vocal sister Sylvia Rivera. I want this episode to be about Marcia so I haven't mentioned Sylvia much yet but Marcia took Sylvia under her wing when Sylvia was forced onto the streets when she was just 12 just let that sink in 12 Sylvia thought of Marcia as her mother Sylvia became the tannoy of the trans street people movement Marcia always said she just went along for the ride
1: She was noticed first for that but uh, talks then started about her activism it made her very different It made people think twice about her, and made people want to stop to talk to her, and made people listen. I've been in gay liberation ever since I first started in 1969. I was one of the first drag queens to try and help the drag queens and other people have food at the Alternate U. Alternate U was one of the places that we first tried to help college queens open their doors to gay liberation. When I started getting in newspapers,
3: uh, TV set for gay pride parades, I was one of the queens that helped feed the queens that were hungry. And I started the Star
1: House, but I didn't actually start the Star House. Sylvia Rivera started the Star House. And I was just one of the queens that was behind her, like the vice president of Star.
0: And yes, that was Marsha herself speaking, as replayed in that Pay It No Mind documentary. Sylvia was a ramrod, and Marcia was a bright doorbell. Both have their important uses, but I think of MPJ was that she was content to be just herself and always do what she thought was right, no matter what. Coming up into the 1990s, the political climate was changing, but the world was hit with the AIDS crisis. If you somehow don't know, AIDS was first publicly seen in the US in the gay community. And, kind of like COVID, some people, gay and straight alike, saw it as an overblown hoax, while others saw it as God's judgment on the quote-unquote gay plague. Gay men, in particular, were dropping like flies. It was a horrible, horrible waste of some very amazing people, and it was also an outlet for some rather odious people to rear their ugly heads. I am looking at you, Pat Buchanan. Marsha was living with Randy Wicker by then, and while everyone was worried about catching HIV from even touching an infected person, Marsha was nursing Randy's life partner, David Combs, through his losing battle with AIDS.
1: Yeah, I know tons of people that have been sick with AIDS. I mean I don't think that you should be ashamed of anybody you know to have AIDS. I think you should stand as close to them as you can and help them out as much as you can. I'm a strong believer in that, and that's how come I try and do that for everybody I know that has a virus, including myself. I have HIV. I've been HIV for about two years. I mean, from helping sick people with AIDS and stuff, I've, that's how I wandered in the hospital. I just finished helping my roommate suffered who had died of AIDS.
3: Marsha lived here, and Marcia literally became the uh, nurse for David. I had to go to work. And she was here all the time, and she would change the linens and and come in once he fell off the couch, and she swept him up in his arms. I had to
1: sit in a room with him when he died, and that was very scary to me.
0: And just to be clear, for those youngsters who don't remember the fear of catching AIDS, much of it caused by misinformation at the time, even those people who sympathized with those who had HIV and or AIDS were afraid of catching it too, maybe only a little, but still afraid. COVID can kill you, but unless you're already immunocompromised in some way, mostly you'll just get really sick for a week or two. There was no cure for HIV or AIDS, no vaccine. You get it and your life was now severely truncated and you could be assured of a prolonged and wretched death. By the late 1980s, LGBTQ people were gaining status as actual human beings, and that may have scared enough people to have produced the abhorrent attacks on gay men and trans people that flourished for at least a decade. On the 6th of July, 1992, at the height of this rash of attacks, Marcia's body was found floating in the Hudson. Her body was pulled out of the water, and almost immediately, the death was ruled a suicide.
2: The word went out in the community that Marcia had been found in the river and, uh, supposedly it was a suicide and she had been harassed in that area. Obviously, this was some kind of shady killing that had gone on. But unsurprisingly, the cops just twiddled their thumbs and said, no, no, it's a suicide. It's a, it's a black gay person. We don't care. We're not going to investigate any further. And everybody was outraged.
0: Everyone who knew Marcia said that she would never commit suicide. Sylvia Rivera specifically said that she and Marcia had a pact that they would cross the river, whether Jordan or Styx, together. Marcia had had troubles with punters before. Remember the bullet in her spine? She supposedly also had a run-in with the mafia, although the circumstances are unclear. But her roommate, Randy Wicker, was loudly pushing against the mob at the time concerning kickbacks for the parade Parade and the Christopher Street Festival. According to certain police in the Netflix doc, The Death and Life of Marcia P. Johnson, they were pulling LGBTQ people out of that river every week or so at the time. By the way, this in and of itself seems like a problem that should have been looked into, but I know NYC has never been a shining beacon of incorruptibility and stalwartness.
3: When we gave most of the funeral up at the church, uh, we hadn't counted on hundreds of people coming. If the church was packed, they had to stop the people from coming in and it was gonna be carried down to the river. Well, we had arranged to go on the sidewalk, but I looked around and there were literally hundreds and we couldn't. So on went outside, I talked to one of the police, whom who I knew, I had a store on Christopher Street, so I knew most of them. I said, look, her family, I can't do it, you know, you've gotta give me the street. And we said, we can't give you the street, you need a permit, Yada, yada, yada. I said, look, it's for Marsha. And the head cop looked and he said, Marsha was a good queen. I said, "Go ahead, give them the street," and we got the street for Marsha's funeral. So it was that kind of effect that Marsha would have, which Tommy is talking about. People, you wouldn't expect a chief of police to suddenly close down Seventh Avenue
0: because Marsha Johnson was going to be carried down to the river. Again, those last two clips were from "Pay It No Mind." The voices of Michael Musto and Bob Kohler. And may I take this opportunity to comment that filmmakers who only give their talking heads a lower third on the first instance they are on film are not doing it right. You piss me off. Before she retired as a victim's advocate, Victoria Cruz took a shot at solving Marsha's death. Her search is the basis for the documentary The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson that is currently on Netflix. She does not find out what happened to Marsha, in part because the case file was poorly kept. But she does discover that it was most probably not a suicide. Could possibly have been homicide or accident and that does include an accident in the process of committing a crime like someone trying to intimidate or scare her. Marsha performed with the drag troupe Hot Peaches for many years. One of her most memorable performances is reciting a poem called Soul by Jimmy Carmica. Because the recording of her is a little hard to understand I'm going to read it first closing with Marsha's voice. Don't forget if you like this podcast, subscribe, rate, review, and you can contact me as Despecta on Insta, Twitter, and TikTok. If you don't like this podcast, keep your roughing opinions to yourself. No one wants to read your one-star voice. Soul. You can count your karma if nirvana is your goal. You can shake and you can rattle. You can rock and roll. You can be a Clark Kent or a Lois or an Alice down a hole. You can be a vampire on a mountain with a heart of stone black coal. You can be a leather angel on a sleek back Harley bike or a redhead screaming faggot or a dazzling dyke. You can lock yourself in a closet in a fine mink stole, but it really doesn't matter if you ain't got soul.
1: Gentlemen, in case you didn't get the message, (laughs) but I know you did. Because I can see that this audience just a message. We
3: oh, have oh, oh,
1: someone to sum it up for you, Miss Marshall. Please. Oh. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am staying home for you. called self. Call oh,
3: self. So- you-
1: goals. You can shake and you can rattle. You can rock and roll. You can be a Clark Kent or a Lois or an Alice down a hole. You can be a vampire on a mountain with a heart of stone black hole. You can be a leather angel on a sleek black holly bike
3: uh-huh.
1: or a red-headed screaming faggot or a dazzling dye. if I mean soul. But it really doesn't matter if you ain't got soul.